Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. The conversation in today's episode is with one of our leading experts on migration studies and Turkish foreign policy. We'll talk about the crisis of Syrian refugees in the Middle East and Europe. Also stay tuned for what's happening in Congress with John Hudak and a special conversation between E.J. Dion and Bill Galston about their new paper on the case for universal voting. My guest today is Kamal Kirishi, the Tusiad Senior Fellow and Director of the Turkey Project in the Center on the United States and Europe here at Brookings. He's been a professor of political science and international relations at Boazice University in Istanbul, where he held the Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration. Kamal is widely published on Turkish foreign policy, EU-Turkey relations, immigration, and migration. Welcome to the show, Kamal. Thank you. We are seeing uh, in the news a crisis of rather epic proportions with Syrian refugees and also refugees from other conflicts around Middle East and North Africa kind of pouring into their neighboring countries, pouring into Europe. Can you kind of put this in context? What are some of the numbers that we're talking about uh, in this crisis? You're absolutely right that it is in epic proportions. It is what Europe is experiencing right now is frequently cited as a refugee crisis of a scale that Europe never saw until since the end of the Second, uh, Second World War. However, I would argue that a crisis of larger dimensions have been occurring in the Middle East or around Syria as well as uh, Iraq. Uh, Right now in Syria, there are more than 7 million Syrians who are internally displaced. And then there is also 4.2 million refugees in the in the neighboring countries of Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, and smaller numbers in Egypt and uh, uh, Iraq uh, as uh, as well. What has happened is that since about midsummer, that a larger a large number of Syrians as well as uh, Afghans and uh, nationals of other countries that are experiencing internal conflicts and considerable instability, who had been on the move for some time, have been joining Syrians as, uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, there are different figures that are being cited. Uh, one of these figures is that Germany, for example, is expecting by the end of this year to have received more than 800,000 asylum applications. The term mixed populations is uh, is used, meaning mixed in the sense that there are asylum seekers, but also people who most probably are illegal migrants or irregular uh, migrants. Greece too has seen, as well as uh, Italy has seen, people coming across from the Mediterranean Sea, in the case of Italy, and the Aegean Sea that separates uh, Turkey and uh, and Greece. It's my understanding that the, the nearly 12 million Syrians who are displaced both within Syria and outside their borders represents about half the total yes, population of Syria. That's astonishing. It does. And earlier you asked me why. Why did this happen? Why did this explosion suddenly right. towards the European Union has, uh, has uh, o- occurred? 
uh, we can cite a number of uh, reasons. I think one reason has a lot to do with what is happening in Syria right now. I think there is growing loss of hope. Uh, there's a growing feeling that the likelihood of uh, things improving in Syria is less than nil, if uh, that one can put it along those uh, lines. But what has also happened is that uh, some refugees who are in the neighboring countries, but particularly in Turkey, who have not been registered with the uh, authorities, right now there are about 2 million refugees, Syrian refugees, who are actually registered. Right. Those are the ones, they're in camps, right? No. No. Yeah, that's what I wanted to underline. About 250,000, 60,000 of them are in 25 camps run by the Turkish government. And then the remaining, about 1.7 million, more than 1.7, 0.7 million of them are registered with government authorities but live in uh, urban centers. And a good proportion of them have a very difficult life in uh, terms of uh, in terms of housing and in, in terms of livelihood. On top of this, a NGO, uh, representatives and government officials are are speculating that there are 240 to 250,000 refugees who are not registered and uh, i am personally speculating that those refugees syrian refugees who have been moving on to uh, greece particularly I think mostly or partly come from this group of refugees in Turkey. There is also in media reporting, in the news we have uh, been seeing in the last couple of weeks, references to Syrians coming directly from Syria and coming directly out of areas under the Syrian regime's control. A lot of young people young people who uh, are fed up with the fighting and don't want to be conscripted into fighting. So Syria itself and the part of Syria that is controlled by the government is also seeing a lot of people uh, that are uh, leaving. One last remark that I'd like to make with respect to uh, why this is uh, happening is that the Uh, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in the course of the last year, year and a half, has been pleading with the international community, but also particularly with the European Union and the United States to make resettlement places available for Syrian refugees in the neighboring uh, countries. He has asked for 130,000 places and uh, countries have come forward with 100,000 places. However, by the time this crisis really hit the media, there had been only 9,000 places that had been filled by Syrian refugees since the beginning of the crisis in 2011. And I have a feeling that 
some of this movement is also driven by despair, by despair that uh, the international community is unable to organize itself and open a channel for at least the resettlement of the most vulnerable through uh, official procedures and have been going to the smugglers, have been risking the, uh, the services of the smugglers, and that has led to quite a few number of these refugees perishing right. in the waters of the Aegean and the Mediterranean. The, the images we've seen, especially of children, the little boy on the beach, yes. um, the man carrying his daughter across the bridge, have been really moving and affecting. Yes. Um, you talked about Turkey, your home country, has become the world's number one recipient of refugees. Mm-hmm. In general, yeah. Can you speak to how the yeah. Turkish government and society are dealing with, yeah. with that? Yes. You know, I happen to be someone who has studied immigration and movement of asylum seekers and refugees into Turkey since 1989. Never in my wildest mind would I have thought that one day Turkey was going to be not only the largest host of refugees, but also, according to the UNHCR, the third or fourth largest largest recipient of asylum, individual asylum applicants. That is, people who are seeking asylum from outside Syria, from Iraq, for example, individually, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Bangladesh, from other third countries, from where people are fleeing and claiming that they are being persecuted. Now, if we have a moment, I can go into some details Please. too. Yes. This trend, the trend in the number of asylum seekers uh, increasing in Turkey had started a couple of years ago. And secondly, because Turkey until recently had been doing reasonably well economically, it had also been attracting a growing number of regular as well as irregular migrants. So the government, through a long process of uh, ne- uh, negotiations, consultations, etc., in April 2013, adopted a new law on foreigners as well as what they called international protection. This way, Turkey, for the first time in its history, had a fully-fledged asylum law. Furthermore, this law also established Turkey's first fully-fledged migration agency. So one could argue that, in a way, Turkey met the flood of Syrian refugees just as it was putting into place legislation and an institutional setup to handle uh, such a an increase in refugees. But though that increase has been way beyond what had ever been thought and speculated it, uh, it would be. What are the ways in which it is impacting Turkey? It is impacting, first of all, in the financial sense of the word. The Turkish government 
claims these days that it has already spent more than six billion U.S. dollars to help to host and protect these refugees. Uh, just to give you an idea, the United States has provided uh, funds for humanitarian assistance totaling to about $4 billion since 2011. The European Union has uh, come up to uh, with just about 4 billion euros, a little bit more than 4 billion uh, dollars. So this is an important uh, sum. Where is this money going to? This money is going to partly running these camps and these camps has received general recognition for being way above the standards of refugee camps around the world. But it is also going towards the uh, health services that are provided for uh, the uh, refugees. It is also going to, to a limited extent for the uh, provision of education. There's a problem there. Much more needs uh, to be, uh, to be uh, done there. Uh, some funds also go for the provision of uh, food and other, uh, other items. But what is happening is that there is increasing grumbling coming from the public opinion. And some are arguing that it is their tax money that is being spent on them while services to Turkish uh, citizens are being undermined. Secondly, in an effort to try to stay alive and survive uh, in Turkey, more and more Syrians are picking up jobs, pushing the wages downwards, leading to at least uh, complaints amongst the Turkish labor force that is not highly qualified. It is also pushing up rent prices. So the country's, in many ways, socioeconomic balance gets uh, strained and public opinion increasingly manifests uh, an opposition towards refugees, which also uh, makes it difficult for the government's ability to manage uh, the problem. There are also political conse uh, consequences, and I wonder if uh, one would not uh, see a relationship between what's going on in Syria as well as the displacement crisis on the one hand and uh, the growing political instability in Turkey uh, as a function of the violence between uh, the, the state authorities and uh, the separatist Kurdish movement PKK. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the problems with education. I know some observers have worried about the uh, Syrian children in Turkey, the, the, the potential loss of a whole generation because they uh, are not getting the education they deserve. Can you speak to that problem? Yes. What is it? It is a problem that is receiving wide recognition. And uh, the latest figures I've come across is that there are about 160 to 165,000 Syrian children that are receiving education, but that is only the tip of the iceberg, that there is another 600,000, 650,000 children in total, and a good proportion of them, around half a million, 
are not receiving the education they should be receiving. And some of the, these children have been around for now for almost five years. And there is great concern what the implications for that lack of education may be in terms of the future. And now we'll take a quick break to find out what's happening in Congress, particularly on the budget showdown and potential closing of the federal government. This week begins a very contentious period in Congress that will last through most of the fall. Now with the Iran deal behind Congress, with it being filibustered in a way that preserves the deal for President Obama, Congress is turning its attention to a few very important issues. First, this week, uh, the Pope will be visiting Congress and addressing a joint session of Congress for the first time in, in history. And the speech is supposed to focus on a variety of issues, including climate change, which has incensed some congressional Republicans and Republicans across the country, seeing the speech as highly political, highly controversial, and highly polarizing. And the speech will be sure to generate quite a bit of political buzz and quite a bit of contentious politics within the institution and outside the halls of Congress. After the papal visit, Congress will turn its attention to the upcoming possibility of a government shutdown. Funding for the federal government runs out on September 30th. And if Congress is unable to pass a patch or continue funding for the federal government, come October 1st, it will shut down in the same way that it did two years ago. Congressional Republicans and Democrats are scrambling in an effort to overcome what has become the most difficult issue around government spending, and that involves funding for Planned Parenthood. Republicans are threatening to shut down the government if Planned Parenthood funding isn't stripped from appropriations, and the president has vowed to veto any spending measure that strips funding from Planned Parenthood. This creates a stalemate that is unlikely to be resolved, and as each day passes, the likelihood of a government shutdown increases. This sets up a series of votes that need to take place throughout the fall involving government spending in one way or another, all of which are very difficult, very challenging, and ones that the leadership in Congress seemingly have no plan to address. This includes a large highway bill, as well as a debt ceiling vote that should have to come up sometime during November. All of this hangs in the balance, a very difficult issue for one leader in particular, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Rumblings within Congress, within the House Republican Conference in particular, is that there will be an effort this fall to remove John Boehner as Speaker, a possible leadership vacuum that is nearly unprecedented in congressional history. Rumors exist that perhaps Democrats will step in, cast their votes for John Boehner, preserving his speakership, but votes that would come with certain specific policy demands that Democrats would put upon Boehner in order to exchange their votes. If the speaker is removed, it would be a rare event in congressional history. It would create a highly polarizing environment in an environment that is already extraordinarily polarizing and it would call into question many of the votes that Congress has facing it over the next several months. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. Thanks, John. And now back to the interview. 
Let's, uh, let's turn to the responsibility of the international community with respect to refugees. What's been codified in international law? What's the expectation for the international community? And also, can you address this uh, notion that if uh, refugees are considered, quote, guests mm-hmm. of the uh, host country, mm-hmm. then they have a different status? Mm-hmm. A very pertinent and important question there. Actually, the rights of refugees in international law is a relatively well-developed area of international law. The main pillar of the international refugee regime is the uh, 1952 Geneva Convention on the Status of Refugees. Uh, That convention defines the rights of uh, refugees, but also in the uh, international refugee regime, there is the recognition that refugees are an international responsibility, or to put it a bit more precisely, the protection of refugees is an international responsibility. It is not the responsibility of solely uh, those countries that are receiving and hosting them. And there are a number of ways in which this regime has defined the, the, the ways in which that responsibility could be put into place. It comes under the rubric of burden sharing. And uh, one uh, concrete manifestation of burden sharing is what I made references to earlier on, resettlement. Not, of course, all the refugees, but at least some of the refugees and particularly the refugees that are uh, very vulnerable. For example, women uh, on their own with their children, children on their own, elderly people, people who are uh, suffering with, from major illnesses or uh, difficult health dif- uh, difficulties is considered as an international uh, responsibility that would call for resettlement. In some ways, taking some of the more difficult burden off the shoulders of uh, the receiving uh, receiving uh, countries. There is also the expectation that the uh, the cost, the cost, the actual cost of of assisting and protecting refugees in the neighboring countries, in the host countries, would also be shared. So the United Nations, for example, has put into place, since the crisis uh, began, a budget to, uh, with which to support what they call humanitarian assistance to uh, refugees. And these budgets have fallen short of being met over the last couple of uh, years. And the one for this year, 2015, was particularly disappointing because when the European refugee crisis erupted in late July and uh, uh, August, uh, only 37% of that budget had been actually realized or had been met by the international community. So the challenge that the international community right now is uh, is facing uh, vis-a-vis the uh, uh, Syrian refugee crisis is the need really 
to put it bluntly, dig deeper into uh, into the pockets, uh, into the treasuries of uh, at least member countries of the United Nations. Now, there's a very important link to the earlier topic we discussed, education here, right? Uh, Lebanon is a very a country uh, very short on resources. Right. And uh, uh, right now, one person out of every four in Lebanon is a refugee. You may have followed in the last uh, couple of weeks this crisis over garbage in Lebanon. So imagine, just imagine how the presence of 1.1 million refugees in a country of 4 million people who are a country that is very short on resources and is facing governance uh, problems as well is impacted by that. And add on top of it uh, that the Lebanese government and society in a very heroic way has opened up its education system to uh, Syrian refugee children by educating Lebanese children in the morning and the others in, in the afternoon. That brings an ad additional strain on the resources of uh, Lebanon. Similar observations can be made for Jordan too. In the case of Turkey, it's even more complicated because unlike in Lebanon and in Jordan, there is the challenge of a new language for the uh, Syrian uh, children. All these costs, obviously, large sums of um, money and funds. Maybe one last manifestation of a burden sharing that I would like to underline is that the United Nations, uh, uh, the World Food Programme had put into place a mechanism whereby refugees were provided by a kind of a credit card or a cash ca card, allowing them the possibility to go to shops and buy some food for themselves. Because of lack of burden, burden sharing in the financial sense of the word, the, food wo the World Food Programme has had to reduce these sums constantly. So each time it gets uh, reduced, what it does is that it brings strain on children in families that otherwise could afford to go to schools ending up trying to pick up a few cents here and there doing menial jobs or even uh, even uh, begging another consequence of that decrease in, uh, in international burden sharing is families being forced to marry away their underaged girls uh, so all these things are very much tied uh, uh, together and uh, 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 although in uh, the international refugee regime there is a, a uniquely uh, detailed provisions for uh, sharing that responsibility, of course, the international system is a system where there is no higher authority. So states cannot be compelled to, to help. It has to be a voluntary process. There has to be a political will mobilized. And in some ways, we see that in the European Union too. 
the uh, uh, the president of the European Union tried to launch uh, uh, last week a quota system for resettlement for Syrian refugees who are already within the European Union. And mm, quite a few members did not like the idea and uh, insisted on voluntary uh, a voluntary quota system. So that that challenge is going to remain there. But in this context, one last point I'd like to make in terms of international responsibility is that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was at uh, Brookings not that long ago. And at the end of her uh, talk during the Q&A period, in response to a question from the floor, she suggested that the best approach would really be to take up this issue as an international global responsibility at the General Assembly of the United Nations that is starting to meet uh, this uh, this week. So it has to be really an international response, not a response just by the neighboring countries and in, uh, for that matter, just the US and the European Union, but also countries from beyond these countries. Are all of these factors that you've just been describing contributors to what you've called, quote, a sad time for international humanitarian governance? Yeah, that's a line that I used in a piece that was uh, put on Brookings' uh, blog for someone who has followed these issues since 1989 and maybe even earlier than, uh, than that. It is a sad moment. It is a sad moment because we feel that that international solidarity is not there. And uh, that solidarity was, it seems to me, for a fleeting moment triggered by that little uh, child you made references to. But what makes the whole thing sadder is that we don't see that solidarity within the European Union as, as well. And that makes the whole thing even sadder. Uh, you know, the case of that little boy is sad in the human sense of, uh, of the word. But the way in which the European Union is bickering amongst themselves is, uh, from a lack of a better term, a kind of a governance or bureaucratic sadness. If the EU can't do this within itself, imagine what is it that we can expect from the rest of the world. We're going to take one more break to let senior fellows Bill Galston and E.J. Dion discuss their new paper on universal voting. And then stay tuned for the final part of my interview with Kamal Kirishi, in which he talks about the responsibility of Western and Gulf Arab states for the crisis and what he learned during his own visits to refugee camps in Turkey. Thanks, Fred. You know, E.J., there's a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. When you heard that I was thinking about writing a paper on universal voting, you came rushing to my office and said, could we write it together? And it really struck me. What made you so enthusiastic about this topic? Well, I've been a fan of universal voting for a long time. Uh, it first, I think, comes from a real affection for an interest in Australian politics. And my friends Tom Mann and Orm Ornstein, friends of yours also, uh, the three of us have spent a lot of time down in Australia. And the first thing that's clear about this is that it works in Australia. It works well uh, in Australia. I'm watching 
Australian elections, you could see a number of things that, you know, this solves a lot of problems simultaneously. We worry about the role of money in politics. Um, uh, universal compulsory voting gets rid of massive expenditures for voter turnout. Uh, more importantly, universal voting changes the assumptions of uh, public policy and uh, what uh, assumptions about what public officials do. Because if everyone is required uh, to live up to their obligation to vote, then election uh, officials uh, and the law itself has to make it possible for people to live up to that obligations. We have some of the most cumbersome laws on voter registration. We actively make it difficult for people to vote, and some jurisdictions of late have made it even more difficult for people to vote. If we had universal voting, we would suddenly flip the assumptions and say the job of an election official is to help Americans do their duty as citizens. Uh, and that, to me, is the most exciting prospect. So that, uh, you know, and the last point is the obvious one, and I want you to talk about that a bit, which is um, there is uh, a need, I think, to talk, A, about the obligation of citizens to our republic, uh, and B, the fact that our democracy is better when it is based on the attitudes of all Americans and not a tiny subset of Americans or a relatively small subset of Americans uh, who uh, go cast ballots. And so what I want to toss back to you is uh, a lot of people will see this as a way of making it easier for and, and, and more likely uh, that lower-income people will participate uh, in voting. And that's almost certainly true, especially if you change the election laws to take into account people's work schedules and the like. Uh, but one of the things that interested you in this um, is that you saw it as a way of reducing political polarization uh, and strengthening the forces in the middle of the electorate. Uh, why would this do that? Boy, that's absolutely right, EJ. And that's a major motive for my interest in this topic. I don't think it's exactly a secret to very many Americans that our political system has been gridlocked for a long time. It's had a harder and harder time getting the basics done, let alone the things that really need to be done for the future. And one of the reasons for that is that when people show up to vote, they are much more likely to be committed partisans of one party or another or ideologically well-defined as liberals or conservatives than are the people who don't show up to vote. And if you get more of the less committed people into the voting pool casting their votes, those people are going to be more open, first of all, to arguments because they haven't made up their minds. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, there's evidence that people who are less committed are also more eager for their representatives in Washington just to roll up their sleeves and get down to work and get the people's business done. But let me add one point. Uh, you said that you've seen Australia and it works. And let me, uh, let me just give a little bit of history around that proposition because you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, in the early and mid-1920s, Australian political parties across the board got really worried about the state of Australian democracy because the rate of voter participation in national elections had fallen below 60 percent. 
frequently in the United States, that's been more like a ceiling than a floor lately. And so they they got together and decided in some cases to sponsor, in other cases not to obstruct, a law that made voting a civic duty and enforced that duty with the equivalent of a traffic fine. And in the very first election after that new law was passed, participation rose from 59% to 91%. It's been below 90% in only one national election since 1926. And in the election since the Second World War, uh, participation has averaged between 94 and 95%. So universal voting is more than a slogan. It's a reality. And Australians have taken it upon themselves uh, to view voting now as a civic duty. They take it for granted. It's not a big deal. It's not an imposition. There aren't people marching in the streets to abolish it. It's just part of the civic culture. It would not have been without the passage of this law almost a century ago. Thanks, Bill. You can find their paper and listen to their complete conversation on our website at brookings.edu slash universal voting. And now back to the interview. Some people have said that the the Western nations specifically bear the most responsibility for the crisis, either through uh, bad policy with regard to Syria or failure to react properly to the crisis as it unfolded. Uh, Do you think that charge has merit? Uh, The answer to it, I think, is a yes and no. Uh, Yes, in the sense that the West, that is... Uh, essentially the European Union and the United States are the major players who put into place after the Second World War the rules, the regulations, the practices, the standards uh, of the current international refugee regime but also the current international humanitarian governance system. And when we see these players falling falling behind the very standards that they had put into place after the Second, uh, Second World War, that is very dis- uh, disappointing. A, a second factor that I'd like to highlight, although this is really open to debate and, uh, and uh, uh, discussion, uh, is uh, the American intervention in Iraq in 2003. I appreciate that at the time, uh, at the, uh, in the context of the, the political climate prevailing, the intentions might have been good that we're going to bring democracy and development in, into the region. But at the time, including in the United States, there were many, uh, many personalities, academics, politicians, experts saying, watch out, be very, be very careful. Uh, and uh, these these uh, warnings and cautions were not heeded. And I am tempted to argue that some of the problems that uh, the Middle East is experiencing uh, t- uh, today is a function of processes that were unleashed by that uh, by that intervention there. Having said that, uh, I would I would be the last person, to argue that uh, governments and countries of the region don't have any responsibility to shoulder to. Uh, One thing that has long disturbed me and uh, puzzled me and made me even sadder uh, 
is that in the region you have countries and governments who are chipping in to protect and to help refugees and displaced persons. But at the same time, they are also helping, uh, financing, politically supporting the very actors that are compelling people to flee. Can I cautiously uh, call attention to the Gulf Arab states in this context? Not only them, others. And uh, uh, what saddens me is that the list is not a very short one. The list is a, is a very uh, long one. Gulf states are frequently cited, but it's not only the Gulf states. Do you think the United States itself, through its own policy, should do more to accept Syrian refugees? I know the Obama administration recently announced that it would try to accept up to 10,000. I'm glad you raised this question because I've come to realize that although I... Uh, I expanded quite a bit about these international standards. Uh, at the end of the day, implementing those international standards are fortunately or unfortunately driven by domestic politics too. Uh, who are the players who have to implement those international standards? It's usually governments or the parts of the governments that that correspond to what is the uh, the State Department here or the Department of State and in other European countries is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. However, they do not operate in a vacuum. They operate in a political context. And through conversations I, uh, I have and, uh, you know, through declarations, through publications and also through what I pick up through the Great Wine, I am 100% convinced that, for example, the, um, uh, the U.S. Department of State would very much like to, to do exactly what uh, President Obama has called for, increase the, uh, the places available for uh, resettling Syrian refugees, actually go even beyond the, uh, the figure that uh, President Obama has has taken up. However, the United States is gearing up towards a presidential election, and uh, none of the aspiring candidates so far has appears to have said anything positive about uh, immigration, let alone about welcoming with open arms Syrian refugees. Instead, the emphasis is constantly put on the likelihood that they may be terrorists. Right. Or one, one GOP contender even wondered whether these refugees were trying to come here because they want cable TV. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not a very tech-savvy person, but I'm quite well aware that the time of cable TV, I understand, is way gone by. Right. You know, pe people... What is fascinating about the images that we've seen from the Syrian refugees trying to make their way into the European Union is the way in which they are equipped with basically top technology, you know, uh, cellular phones. They are able to communicate amongst each other. And interestingly, that these people are not necessarily the worse off in the economic sense of the word. These are people who had means, who had managed to keep some of their means 
to be able to pay off these unscrupulous uh, human uh, smugglers. I would argue that in the case of Syrian refugees, what is driving them is not a desire to have access to cable TV or for that matter, refrigerators or hybrid cars, etc. It is uh, really, it saddens me again, foremost is they want to get their kids the best education they can give under the circumstances. And they're looking for the stability that would make it possible for, for them. Let's talk for a minute about solutions. You, you mentioned earlier what uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said here at Brookings about maybe what the United Nations General Assembly should do. What other kinds of specific policy solutions are out there, both from the United States policy level and also the yeah. global community? At the end of the day, I think practically any any well-informed commentary or article you read in the uh, printed media or you hear from people debating these issues on uh, TV and in the social media, at the end of the day, it's finding a solution to the Syrian, Syrian cri- crisis. But uh, hand in hand with that also also comes the recognition that a political solution to the root cause of what's going on is not around the corner. And that I find very scary. I think the the international community is going through a period where it has lost its will and capacity to, 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 to mobilize the support and uh, the uh, the will to address such a challenging problem there and instead we have all kinds of players countries i don't even want to mention names but pulling things in in different directions while human suffering uh, keeps keeps mounting and i think when the uh, when hillary clinton made references uh, to what she said, I don't think she put the accent on a political, on, a, on an effort to uh, find a political solution. I think the accent was more on finding a humanitarian solution to try to rise above the political challenges and directly adre- address the humanitarian challenge uh, there. Will it happen? Well, uh, you know, the General Assembly is just starting its meetings and we will see if the international community represented there will be able to, to, to pull off some, uh, to pull this off. And, you know, earlier on you asked me the question about the responsibility of uh, the United States and the European Union, the, the, the West. Uh, on the one hand, we see the West being bitterly criticized, and I'm going to go along with part of that criticism, but it is more than just the, the, uh, the, uh, the West that uh, has to contribute to finding, uh, finding a, a practical response to the humanitarian crisis, let alone finding a political solution to uh, the uh, the Syrian uh, crisis. 
Kamal, I'd like to uh, finish off this discussion with hearing from you about your very personal experience with uh, the refugees. I know that you and colleague Beth Ferris, who directs our project on internally displaced persons, have visited Mm -hmm. refugee camps both a couple of years ago and this past summer, and you have a report coming out on that. Can you talk about visiting the refugees in these camps? Uh, you, you know, as you might suspect, I could come up with a very long list of uh, o- observations. But let me try to come up with those that most relate to the current crisis uh, that uh, is being faced in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I remember us uh, visiting a camp outside the city of Diyarbakir, uh, which is going through difficult days these uh, these days. And that's in uh, Turkey? Yes, that's in Turkey, in southeast Turkey, in a part of Turkey that is heavily Kurdish populated and uh, is a city that is run by, uh, uh, by uh, the Kurdish political party. Uh, about 10 or 15 kilometers outside that uh, city was a camp this time run by the municipality, not one of those 25 camps run by a very effective, actually, a government agent, a agency. This is municipality. And it was a camp for Yazidis, for people who had fled uh, the, uh, the Singar Mountains when ISIS had attacked the uh, Yazidi communi- uh, co- communities. Uh, I think many of us will remember uh, pictures and images from that crisis unfolding earlier uh, this uh, this uh, summer. And the officials that we talked to there, local officials that we talked to, amongst the many observations that they make, one that struck me is how they try so hard to dissuade them from trying to make it to the European Union illegally. They said we work so hard so that they won't fall uh, into uh, the hands of uh, smugglers. But they also said we feel so alone here. We need support in the humanitarian assistance sense of the word and also some response to these Yazidis craving to go to, to Europe, partly for religious reasons as well, having experienced the horror they did in the hands of the uh, Islamic uh, State there. Another very quick uh, observation I'd like to to make is to give some credit to uh, government officials that are actually working on the ground, that are day-to-day trying to resolve all kinds of little problems in an effort to uh, make uh, life a little bit easier for those who are refugee in refugee camps. But these officials saying, how long can we expect them to last in these refugee camps, even though they are also well aware that the international community recognizes these refugee camps as being of high quality? They keep saying, you know, after a while, it becomes suffocating in, uh, in, in there. And then we also talk to lots of, uh, lots of civil society activists, international as well as local as well as uh, Syrians, and the way in which 
They really work and try hard against all odds. And finally, and this anecdote that I'd like to share, uh, we we put it up as a little piece on Brookings uh, blog. We wrote it together with uh, Beth uh, Ferris. Was the story of a young Syrian uh, lady, I think in her only very early 20s, who was working for a small Syrian NGO running an unofficial uh, school for Syrian refugees. And she told us how they managed to get out of, uh, of Aleppo with her mom and how she's trying to survive in the city called Gaziantep near uh, Syria, a very developed, organized, quite pretty city, actually, with that tiny little salary that she receives from uh, this N NGO. And she said, she told us that her, her sister with her kids are stuck in Aleppo because they don't have the means to come out of Aleppo, meaning they cannot pay the fees that you need to pay as you move along through checkpoints and that security is so horrible that they are stuck in the insecurity of Aleppo, uh, the, this northern major city in, uh, in Syria. And when you hear that from, uh, from someone alive, it really deeply touches you and it makes you realize how vulnerable in many ways, our lives and the world is and how important it is to appreciate what uh, maintaining stability and proper governance, uh, etc., is. That's incredible. Thank you, Kamal, for your witness to and uh, research on this terrible problem. And also, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Uh, you can look for the report by Beth Ferris and Kamal on our website, September 29th, I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, you can learn more about Kamal Kirishi and his research on our website at brookings.edu and also follow him on Twitter at Kamal Kirishi. I'll spell that out, K-E-M-A-L-K-I-R-I-S-C-I. -I. My thanks to my audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nietzsche, Rebecca Weiser, and Eric Abalahan. Also thanks again to the Podcast Movement and the Academy of Podcasters for naming the Brookings Cafeteria Best News and Politics podcast in this year's awards. We're very honored for this recognition. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.